I'm investigative reporter Chris Halsney, and this is Interview with Evil, Ted Bundy's FBI Confessions. Before we get started, I want to share with you what it's like to be in the presence of Ted Bundy, arguably one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. From about 1974 to 1978, Bundy murdered at least 30 young women. She was unconscious, but she was very much alive. The story of this intimate encounter is from Dave Reichert, a famous homicide detective from the Pacific Northwest. While I lived in Seattle from 1999 to 2014, I called him both sheriff and congressman. Uh, the, the image that I uh, always speak about and can never get out of my mind is the one that, um, as we walked into this interview room in Stark Prison, um, I he, he he put his hand out to me to shake hands, and uh, I hesitated for a moment uh, because the the kind of the thought and the thing that flashed in front of me was how many how many uh, you know how many murders has he committed how many lives has he taken with these hands and uh, I just remember that so vividly standing there about to shake his hand and, and when I did and looked into his eyes it was my first time when I said to myself man this is I'm looking into the face of pure evil Bundy's legion of fans has called him smart handsome even innocent or falsely accused but pure evil those two words are the ones that most succinctly and effectively describe Bundy's personality. I'm mistake, not mistaken that August 74 date refers to a young woman out of uh, the southwestern part of the state who, was, who disappeared and was found in the past somewhere. So far, this podcast series has been focused on rare recordings made only a few days before serial killer Ted Bundy was executed in January of 1989. After years of denial, he finally admits to the kidnapping, rape, and mutilation of corpses. I had a metal toolkit in the front of the, 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 the trunk, such as it is in the Volkswagen. And it had everything in there. I mean, you know, all the, the tools you need to repair a Volkswagen, just like any toolkit metric stuff. And in there was a hacksaw. And also a little shovel, a little army shovel. In my quest to obtain the FBI's raw, unedited confessional cassette tapes, I discovered additional recordings of Bundy that not too many people know exist. We're going to analyze them over the next several episodes. This is a tape-recorded interview uh, between uh, Bob Keppel, Dave Reichert, and Ted Bundy. The date is 11-17 of 84, the time is 15-34 hours. And the interview is taking place in the Florida State Prison in one of the interview rooms there. Uh, Mr. Bundy, do you have any objection to the... No, no, no. You're aware that it's being tape recorded here? Yes. In late 1984, Bundy is sitting on death row while his legal team filed appeals. He was convicted of murdering two Chi Omega sorority sisters at Florida State University in 1978, plus a 12-year-old girl named... Kimberly Leach. He killed all of them within a few weeks of one another. 
While sitting in his cell, Bundy was avidly reading the Seattle newspapers, and those newspapers were full of articles about another active, elusive, and mysterious serial killer, a guy snatching up and murdering prostitutes by the dozens. Very labor-intensive, a lot of work to do, and uh, especially since we recovered the skull. Cairo Team get... 7 investigators uncover some new potential clues in the cases of Green River victims, Becky Marrero, and Kelly... And stay with Cairo 7 Eyewitness News for continuing coverage of all the new developments that break in the Green River murders case. And I said, you remember me? I said, you're a freak, huh? I said, what do you like to do? And he said, yeah, I'll give you $400. Bundy nicknamed him the River Man. And he was not about to remain idle while another killer was taking all his limelight. Bundy actually reached out to police in King County. He started writing letters to the Homicide Task Force offering to help profile the other killer. It's kind of fascinating watching some of this unfold, assuming they're all related. And I would say that it's a good chance that he obviously A member of that special unit believes Bundy acted out of jealousy. I saw a guy that uh, wanted back in the limelight. I think that's the reason, the main reason that he called and wanted to talk to us is that he saw that Ridgeway was, uh, well, as he called him because we didn't know it was Ridgeway then, he saw that the river man was uh, getting a lot of press and that his body count was increasing rapidly, and it could surpass him, and therefore, you know, it resulted in him not being the most prolific, uh, vicious, monstrous killer in the history of this country, but that the Riverman uh, might soon become that and have that title. So I think that's a real reason why he wanted to talk to us, is to insert himself back into some sort of a, uh, limelight so that he could get the media back, focused back on him. I suppose I better tell you a little bit about the Green River Killer before proceeding on. He started kidnapping and killing sex workers in the Seattle area in 1982 and wasn't caught until just after Thanksgiving 2001. A truck painter from the Kenmore factory named Gary Leon Ridgway eventually confessed to killing 49 young women, but the true number is closer to 70. After years working the case as a homicide detective, Reichert was sheriff when they finally nabbed Ridgeway. And, and you know, uh, I, people have asked me, how did, you, how did you make it through an investigation like that? It, it's so brutal, uh, so horrific. Um, you, um, you, you think about, I would never wish uh, this experience that I went through and the rest of my team went through on any detective um, to to collect bodies, sometimes up to five to seven bodies a week of little girls and young women in all states of decomposition is a gruesome, um, mind-altering uh, experience. You can't erase 
those visions from your mind. They, they, they stay with you for the, your entire life. This, this case has, has changed me and affected my family, you know, and every detective that worked on this case who went through that for years, imagine 19 years and the most intense years were the first nine. Um, and, and imagine this too with, with Bundy. Um, and the pressure put on the detectives and going to bed each night and thinking about, well, how many people did he kill, you know, in the last day or two days? And what are we missing so we can stop this? And going to bed every night thinking that someone else's life is going to be taken. One of those detectives Reichert is talking about is a guy named Bob Keppel. Keppel lost a lot of sleep trying to catch both the Green River killer and Ted Bundy. In fact, he chased those two serial killers his entire homicide career. Keppel witnessed things only in nightmares every single week. He oversaw crime scenes where detectives dug up the homemade graves of dozens of murdered young women. And he knew more about Ted Bundy and Gary Ridgway than anyone. Bob's health has prevented him from speaking for himself during this podcast. I just, you know, really am so respectful of Bob and uh, the effort that he put forth and the the talents that uh, that man has as far as being this critical, tenacious, detailed investigator and so dedicated. Um, and it was an honor. Bob and I made, made a good team. Um, he's more the precise interviewer, um, nailing down exact facts and figures that he knew about uh, Bundy and some of the cases that he had um, worked on in the 70s. And then I'm, I'm more of the personal connection uh, sort of interviewer, <laughs> trying to connect with uh, and make him feel comfortable. So Bob is the technician, and I was sort of like uh, the one who, you know, put my arm around him and uh, tried to get a little bit close to him. But, you know, he's a crafty guy, Mr. Bundy. So in November of 1984, Reichert and Keppel accepted Bundy's invitation to help them catch the river man. You can change it to Do you have any speculation as to why he may be doing that? Well, first of all, it's no good place. He's trying to dispose of the bodies and well, they won't be found. This guy doesn't want to get caught. Neither does he want to have his bodies found. I think it's clear that over time you can see him, at least to appear, over time he's trying to improve the dump sites. He's trying to get better at disposing of his bodies. Uh, Generally speaking, now you can all say, "Well, he's really clumsy. I would have done it this way." But who knows? Under this, with a mental apparatus, he's dealing with what he thinks is effective and what isn't. But I think, as far as the downtown Seattle goes, yes, there's obviously no close by place to dump them. You know, Pacific Highway South has got all this stuff within, you know, within a short driving distance. I think it appears to me, my guess would be that they're dying shortly after he picks them up. Another reminder goes here, with an apology. 
These recordings were made on cassette tapes 35 years ago, and I'm told stored for a while in a metal filing cabinet in the bullpen of the homicide unit in King County, Washington. They were later moved to cardboard boxes in evidence storage. The quality is not the greatest, but we've done what we can to boost the audio and clear things up. And I'm not saying stop, like you say, there's no guarantee you stop, but he's gotten a lot smarter somehow. Something has changed in October, around October of 83 because he may, have, he may not have moved. He may not have been struck by lightning. Do you think it's possible that this guy could stop? No. No, well, unless he got, you know, unless he uh, was born again <laughs> and got filled with the Holy Spirit in a very real way, uh, he's either moved, he's either dead, or he's either doing something very different. And uh, my feeling is, uh, no, I mean, he could be, there's no question in my mind, but if he's straightened up, ch changed his victim class just a little, to deal with runaways generally rather than prostitutes specifically, broadened, broadened out a little bit more just to deal with runaways and delinquents, with more careful in the way he disposes their bodies, uh, there, there's no question that this would explain the kind of uh, the apparent drop off. He did look nervous at times to me. Uh, I could see his carotid artery pumping away. Um, he wasn't quite as confident um, as people uh, described him. But he was play, playing a game. It was, you know, it was obvious. When we asked the questions that we were interested in getting answered, like, what do you think the Riverman uh, might do? How did the Riverman start? Uh, what are some of the habits that the river man might have? Um, we soon discovered and, and expected this uh, when we went down there that he um, didn't disappoint us as far as talking in the third person. Armed with maps of dump sites where the Green River Killer had scattered remains, Keppel and Reichert sat with Bundy for two and a half days and they had a couple of goals. First of all, Bundy hadn't really talked about his own crimes very much, so they wanted to listen to his analysis of the River Man, and that might give them some new clues about unsolved murders related to Bundy. Could he feel like he's in competition with the task force, or with you, or with Bob, or somebody, and, and want to play, or come out, you know, or, or torment you in some way? I'm sure there are some guys like that, but I mean, I would, I would hesitate to try to, I would hesitate to stereotype serial killers generally as the individuals who get off on that. Certainly, there's an amount of competition between this individual and the police. That's, it just got to be. But whether it really gets off on that, or whether in fact that's just sort of a, a, a benefit. Such an arrogant piece of work was an arrogant piece of work that we might be able to get some sort of um, clue as to what he did here in Washington State. We didn't expect to get a confession, but um, you know, some some words that might lead us to believe that he uh, might describe might be describing some of his crimes up here in Washington State. Secondarily, here's a fact. Bundy understood how serial killers operated and got away with their crimes for extended periods of time. He was worth 
listening to. This guy's bright enough. You know, he may not be a wizard, uh, but he's bright enough to understand that uh, he can't be approaching the same way every time. Uh, because he knows, just like you know, that those areas are under heavy surveillance, even under the best of times. But he was going back there after, he, after the heat was on. I continually was amazed by this guy's balls. Uh, I mean, after all the victims he snatched from Pacific Highway South, it seemed they continued to disappear from there. I don't, I mean, my guess is he just blends into that. And he may well be a familiar type character. And he may feel so comfortable with these type women and understand them so well, he knows how to manipulate them. Uh, my feeling was, even with what little I knew, that your man was a part of the subculture that these women find themselves in. Now, I don't know that you can say there is a particular set of characteristics that characterize the subculture of prostitution, but I, I try to perceive it as, or conceive it as a subculture that involves you know, drugs and runaways and, and, and uh, you know, certain individuals just comfortable in dealing with you know, that kind of scene. He's, he has a method of approach, he has a lure or a ruse which applies to more than just prostitutes. He's not walking up to them and saying, okay, hey baby, you wanna, you know, you wanna go for a ride? Uh, you know, pay you 50 bucks or whatever to go in there. If you have people, if you have victims who are, who are not prostitutes, it says that he has a ruse that's, that's more generalized, that he's in fact not coming on all the time at the job, that he's coming on to something else, or offering them something else. See, See what I'm getting at? If you had a hitchhiker in there, or, or somebody who was in a bar, you know, you know, may have dressed like or acted like or looked like a prostitute, but in fact was not, who, who may have appealed to this man for one reason or another. In the end, Bundy's profile of Ridgeway was pretty accurate, as accurate anyway as the FBI's newly formed and not yet famous band of criminal profilers. Now, once all the facts came in, after the Green River Killer was captured in 2001, Reichert looked back and noticed all the details the FBI guessed wrong with their new mind science. And so, yes, back in the early 80s, uh, behavioral science unit was fairly new. We had John Douglas and his team out in... Um, I want to say early, it's probably in the 83 to 84 era, and uh, we met with John and his team. They came up with a profile, pretty sketchy information back then. We, we um, uh, were very frustrated because uh, the profiles that we got were all slightly different, and so it, it was viewed back then as basically an investigative uh, tool, and um, we we sort of sideline things, and and uh, you know one of the things that that Ridgeway did was he tried to communicate, as you asked earlier about communication, through a very cryptic note that you may have read about in, in the book, um, and that note was sent to the FBI, and the FBI said no, this was not written by your killer later. Um, during the interview, we discovered that, yes, indeed, Ridgeway had written the letter, described the letter before it was shown to him, and, um, and then he explained 
because, as I said, it was cryptic. So he explained what he meant by some of the cryptic language that he that he used. So, but the scariest part of Bundy's profile is that he and the Green River Killer had such similar methods that Bundy was not only guessing correctly about his nemesis, but he was also relaying clues about himself and his sadistic actions. I, you know, as far as him describing what a river man would do with bodies, um, that's exactly what Bundy was doing. And, and of course, when we later interviewed Ridgeway, we discovered that Ridgeway was doing um, the same things. In fact, Ridgeway not only would have sex after uh, he killed them, he'd go back more than once, but he also removed body parts, you know, um, he removed the skull of one victim from Pacific Highway South, took her all the way down to Tigard, Oregon. Um, he removed the skull of uh, another victim. I, I know the names, but I, I don't want to use those. But uh, skull of another victim he brought up from a very steep embankment and placed the skull um, right next to a city limit sign uh, in Washington and you know, to say, here's the here's the body right here. Not only that, there were five other bodies at that location. So I think Bundy played those kinds of games, and um, Ridgway played those kinds of games. Only a small percentage of serial killers are also necrophiliacs, enjoy having sex with their dead victims. Yet both Bundy and Ridgway shared that trait, something Bundy correctly assessed during the 1984 interviews. In Bundy's case, go to the beach, pick up the victim, disappear, um, have sex, kill the victim. It's not about the sex. It's all about, that's one thing consistent, I think, about all the profiles. It's about the power. It's about the hunt um, of the victim. And it's about the power over life and death. And then once you take the life, it's the thought of knowing you had the power to take that life, which... You know, you wiped off the face of the earth. And and that's hard for, so collecting body after body, it's, once you catch the person and you get into these interviews, it's hard for a normal, so put quotes around normal human being, right, if there is a normal, to, to cope with and understand how a human being can be so callous as to just um, take somebody off the street and your mission is to grab that person, kill that person, you know, have sex before and after death. And uh, in Ridgeway's case, on the way to work, picked up a victim, um, had sex with her, killed her, put her in the back of his truck, drove her to work in the back of his pickup truck with a canopy on it, did four hours worth of work, punched out for lunch, got in the truck, drove to a dead-end street, had sex with the body came back to work, finished out his shift, uh, started to drive home, pulled off on a, on a secluded road, had sex again with the dead body, and then buried her, drove home, had dinner with his wife and son. Whew. Intentional pause here. Let that sink in. Like Bundy, Gary Ridgway had no issues with necrophilia. Actually, let me correct myself. Ridgeway did have one limitation. He told prosecutors he'd go kill another fresh girl 
whenever the maggots got too bad on his prior victim. It's hard to fathom these two degenerates came from the same city. Yeah, well, I don't. I'm not trying to. I'm trying to convince you, Bob, that you should be interested in why. If you're not, uh, I, I think there are a lot of people who are. I know I am, uh, and I think a lot of people are interested in why. People constantly come up to me. They said, "Will, will, will ask me why." I mean, it baffles people. And I mean, they're not law enforcement folks, and I don't think you really mean that the why never caught anybody, because understanding the people you run after, you're after, is is is. Sometimes 90% of, 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 of funding, okay, and that's what you're trying to do with the Green River guy, and uh, more power to you, but uh, I think why is important to a certain degree. I'm not saying that's, we're going to, uh, we're going to uh, make any tremendous breakthroughs here, that I'm some kind of different creature, uh, but I think I have ability to articulate what was going on inside me a lot better than a lot of other people. I want to give you a couple of good examples of what Reichert is talking about when he says Bundy was speaking in the third person during the 1984 interview. In essence, whenever Bundy talked about how the river man might think or act, he was, in reality, speaking about himself. This is Bundy in 1984 talking about how the river man might get rid of evidence. The second thing that he might be doing is simply throwing the shit out the window of the car he's driving along. That might sound a little bit weird. That's one way to do it. Sound familiar? That's what Bundy said five years later, just before his execution, after admitting to killing George Ann Hawkins. The, the crutches, the rope, the clothes, just tossing them out the window. I just had, I just was just, I was in a, a sheer state of panic. And here is Bundy again in 1984, guessing how the river man might be using fire to get rid of evidence. I guess there are any number of ways to dispose of the clothing. He could be burying it. He could be burning it at home if he has a fireplace or a burning barrel. He might not. But this guy is, is going for the, if, if my sense of it is right, he's going for the quick disposal. He doesn't want to have much around at all. That's what Bundy was doing. Remember he said, it was bizarre, even for him, to burn the skull of one of his victims inside his girlfriend's fireplace. Burn it all up. Down to the last ash. There are dozens of examples from the 1984 tapes where Bundy almost tauntingly transferred his very real criminal thoughts and behaviors onto the river man. Go back to the hunt for a minute. Uh, he understands or has observed them in the past, or he's been in the same kind of environment where they lived and worked. He understands their movements, so so his hunt is somewhat simplified by the fact that he understands what, you know, where they are generally and how they behave and where he can find them. He's gone to a great deal of trouble to, to check out the area everything that goes on, it's not just the prostitutes, but the police. He's very conscious of the police, I bet you he's okay. undercover or whatever. Because he's not only because he's very conscious of not wanting to have anybody observe him approach one of his women, but also because, uh, you know, he's lived in that scene for long enough, he knows what they look like. You know, he can sense when they're coming. So he's very conscious of all kinds of activity, and, he's, and, and I, my guess is, generally speaking, and I'm sure there are exceptions, where if he's just driving along and sees something he likes, it feels right. He looks around, and he parks the car. And it's not like Reichert and Keppel didn't know what he was doing, but Bundy never slipped, 
never completely gave himself away. These these individuals are so um, smooth and uh, unpredictable, uh, very misleading when you talk, very frustrating to interview uh, because they you can't get into the mind of a serial killer. There, there's absolutely no way. Bundy, I think there was an attempt there, whether it was legitimately, you know, for the purpose of helping us, of course, we know that's not true. Um, it, it's, uh, I, I think it's impossible to call it a science when your main goal is just to interview and try to sort of try to understand their thinking. You can compile information and compare some similarities to these minds with the answers that they give, um, and then also examine the differences and compare that data. But every serial killer is different. And that's why I say I can I can tell you a lot about Ridgeway. Uh, and I can only speak to, you know, my brief encounter with Bundy and some of the similarities between those two. But um, I don't think anybody could be an expert on serial killers. The biggest advantage of the earlier interview was that Bob Keppel and his low-key demeanor and respect for Bundy's opinions gained Bundy's trust. And when Bundy knew he was down to the last days of his life, it was Keppel he invited into the room for his true deathbed confessions. Okay, George Ann Hawkins' area is pretty much so thoroughly searched. I mean, that was the first one, and it was, we went for miles all over our hands and knees. We found a lot of bones, but you know, by the time we got, the only thing we have with her You know, it, it makes the hair on your arm and your neck go up, and you just, you just go, how in the world can anybody be so twisted? How do they get this way? Reichert is now working with the State Department and the University of North Texas on a DNA database project aimed at stopping human trafficking in Central America. It's not a job for the faint of heart, but he says it is rewarding and important not unlike chasing Ted Bundy and working on the Green River Killer Task Force. Before we get going, I have to share something really cool that's happening with these raw recordings. They will be embedded inside an immersive true crime experience. A group of augmented reality designers are launching a new app called Crime Door this week. It'll feature the George Ann Hawkins case. Here's how Crime Door works. Download the app from Google Play or the Apple App Store. 
Then you can literally walk into the kidnapping crime scene on your phone or iPad. And it's not only that you get to look around in every direction, but you can move through the scene. You can look inside Bundy's Volkswagen Bug, which is modified to help him hide a body. You are right there with Bundy while he's holding his deadly crowbar over one of his first victims. Part of this experience is allowing you to review key pieces of evidence as well, like the handcuffs Bundy used to keep his victims from fighting back if they woke up. Here Bundy describing in vivid detail exactly how he lured Hawkins to his VW Bug in that dark dirt parking lot near the University of Washington. These AR creators are profiling all sorts of unsolved murders to raise awareness, help law enforcement, and promote amateur detective work. Catching killers in cold case crimes is the ultimate goal, no matter how many years the crimes have gone unsolved. Download Crime Door today. Coming up on our next segment of Interview with Evil, a secret trove of Ted Bundy investigation recordings locked up for years until we asked to hear them. This is Dr. Marine speaking. This is April 2nd, 1975. In my office, I have Dave Sargent, who will be a subject for some uh, hypnotic uh, exploration. So our Bundy files currently are in our vault, which I mean, it has a little bit more security because it requires an additional key to get into. Um, everybody who works here, so all of the staff members, including myself, have undergone um, the criminal justice level background investigations, so fingerprints, the whole nine yards. Um, and that's a requirement to work here because we do have restricted records that aren't available to the general public. How a hypnotist and a pair of psychics crossed lives with Ted Bundy in the frantic hunt to catch the serial killer. To download exclusive content, more raw, unredacted recordings of Ted Bundy admitting to various crimes, please visit the Interview with Evil Patreon account.